You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Let's pray together before we begin. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. You are faithful. And we pray that in Your Word we might see again Your faithfulness, Your love for us in Christ, that we might apprehend and comprehend the glory of the cross in all its fullness and what You have done for us there. We bow our heads and our hearts before You and ask that You would send Your Spirit to teach us in Your Word. And may You be glorified in our time of reflection here upon Your truth. Incline our hearts to the truth and open our eyes that we may behold in Your Word wonderful things. Be honored here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the death of Christ on the cross was not something that Jesus was trying to avoid. Uh, It was, in fact, the very reason that he came to this earth. And even his his anxiety, anxiety is the wrong word, his angst in the Garden of Gethsemane over the impending doom of the cross and his prayer, Father, if if it be thy will or if possible, let this cup pass from before me, even that was not Christ trying to find some way to avoid the cross. It was the expression of his humanity at the the profound gravity of what he was facing on the cross. And that prayer uttered by him in the Garden of Gethsemane was a humble submission to the will of the Father. He knew what the Father's will was, and the the will of the Divine Son was the same as the will of the Father. They willed the same thing, that is, his death on the cross. But Christ was confronted with the reality of all that that meant. And for the months leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus had been teaching his disciples on numerous occasions that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be delivered into the hands of Gentiles and sinners and they will crucify Him and they will beat Him and they will kill Him and three days later He will rise again. But after they got into Jerusalem, after the crowds had praised Him and sung His praises and hailed Him and welcomed Him as a King, it might have been that the disciples would have sat back and thought, you know, all that talk for the last several months about coming here and dying, how could that possibly happen now? after the way that the city welcomed him and the nation welcomed him, and now we have Greeks who are seeking after him. Surely this is the time for the establishment of the kingdom. And they may have thought to themselves, 
Maybe all of that talk was just that, talk. How is it even possible that he could die now after what this nation just did in welcoming him? But despite the apparent embrace of the Jewish nation, of their Messiah, the plan of God from eternity past to sacrifice Christ on a cross was still going to happen. It was still going to follow. The plan had not been changed simply because the, the city appeared to welcome him, even though it was outwardly. And so Jesus, when he is in Jerusalem, has an opportunity when the Greeks come seeking him to teach them and the disciples and the crowd about the nature and necessity of his death. And we looked last week about the, at the necessity of the death of Christ, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And that is Jesus describing what was required of him. It is necessary that in order for the harvest of the Gentiles and the nation and the kingdom to come, he must go uh, to the cross and he must die, he must perish, and in so doing he would then secure the blessings of the glory that they expected which would follow. And of course that brought with it the demands of the gospel that you must be, you must hate your life in this life compared to, uh, and, and gain with it eternal life, and you must, uh, if you love this life, then you will lose it because you will cling too tightly to it. So now as Jesus is taught about the necessity of his death, we come to verse 26 and following where he describes two things that come out of his death. First, glory, that's in verses 27 to 29, and the second is victory in verses 30 to 33. There is glory to God in the death of Christ, and there is victory over his enemies in the death of Christ. And today, we're just going to be looking at the glorious aspect of the cross, and then, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll tackle the victorious aspect of the cross. So just the glory today, verses 27 to 29. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name. And when Jesus says, my soul has become troubled, that is, that is likely simply the expression, his expression of the angst of his soul over the reality of the death. So this is kind of like a glimpse into the heart of Christ prior to Gethsemane. We are aware of and, and, and we can remember what happened in Gethsemane when he prayed to the Father those three times, if it's possible, let this cup pass from before me. He sweat the drops of blood. He wrestled in prayer that night before his crucifixion. And this is another glimpse, although earlier, maybe a couple of days earlier, into the heart of the Savior as he is facing the reality of the cross and what that meant. There was a certain degree of being troubled. And Jesus says, my soul is troubled. And that word troubled is a form of the Greek word terasso, and it means to shake up, to stir. When used of a, of a state of mental agitation like this, it refers to a, a state of severe mental distress or agitation over it. Uh, it is used in John chapter 5 or 7 when, when John describes the angel coming down and stirring up the water in the pool of Bethesda. That's the same word that's used there. It's to be agitated, to be stirred up, to be, to be in, in anxiety. Not anxiety is, anxiety is the wrong word, but angst. It's a, it's a distress of the soul that Jesus is describing there. A distress of the soul. And this is a glimpse into the heart of the Savior. It was a very real distress that he felt aware of the cross and what it would bring. Now, behind his words, there are two great theological truths. I'm going to give you these two great theological truths, and then I'm going to describe them and apply them in just a moment. The first great theological truth behind these words, my soul is distressed, is what we refer to as the hypostatic union. The second, the imputation of sin and righteousness. Hypostatic union, imputation of sin and righteousness. Now, you, you probably can see where the, I'm going to go with this. This is what, these are the two great theological realities that lie behind his distress. So let's just take each of those in turn. First, the hypostatic union. 
Hypostatic union is simply a big theological word. It sounds really fancy. It just simply means personal union. And when theologians refer to the hypostatic union in or of Christ, what they are referring to is the union of two natures, divine and human, in one person. The, two na- the union of two natures, a divine nature and a human nature in one person. Christ was not two persons. He was one person, but he had two natures. Nature is different than personhood. You can have a, you can have a nature, something, the nature of something is not reflective of how many persons exist. So you see that there is a singular person because Christ says, my soul, singular. He doesn't say my souls. It's not more than one soul, more than one person in one body. It is the union of two natures, nature being different than person. He had a divine nature and he had a human nature. Those two natures in the person of Christ were in perfect harmony and perfect union. They never conflicted with one another. There was never any uh, a conflict or argument between the two natures. They both perfectly expressed themselves in one singular person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now sometimes in the New Testament we see Jesus acting and doing and saying things that express His divine nature. So we see Him, for instance, able to know Nathaniel from before He even met Nathaniel, seeing Him under the fig tree. He knew the history of the woman at the well. John says at the end of John chapter 2, Jesus didn't need for any man to testify of Him to him what was in man because he knew what was in all man. He could, he could read men's thoughts. He could read men's minds. He knew the history of men and the personal history and their sin nature. All of it. He knew all of that. Those were the expressions and the, and the, uh, the expressions and the feelings of his divine nature. But also in scripture, we see Jesus expressing and doing things that are completely in keeping with his human nature. So for instance, we see him thirsting and hungering and getting tired and experiencing pain and distress or anxiety like we have here in this text. And we see him, sometimes we see things in Scripture that we say, well, that's, that's the divinity of Jesus on display. Sometimes we see things that we say, that's the humanity of Jesus on display. They were never at odds with each other, never conflicting with one another, perfectly expressed in harmony in this one person, not a split personality, but two natures, fully unified in this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have to walk very circumspectly at this point because it is... When discussing the nature of Christ, you can fall off into heresy land very quickly. So you've got to be very careful. And, and throughout history, this has happened. If you study church history and the heresies of church history, you see that every major history, uh, heresy in the history of the church has somehow related to the nature of Christ, His divinity or His humanity, and how they go together. So I want to walk very circumspectly as I describe this. And I apologize ahead of time if I'm doing heresy. That's not the intention, but... Follow me carefully, and I will speak carefully. In the distress of the Lord Jesus in his soul, that is the expression and the experience of his human nature. This is not the expression or the experience of his divine nature. Now you say, where was his divine nature while his human nature was expressing and experiencing distress? The divine nature never left him. The divine nature was there all the time. And this is one of the mysteries of the Incarnation. This is what makes the Lord Jesus such a magnificent study and such a magnificent person and worthy of our adoration and praise. To study Him, we we are to see the divine nature and the human nature each expressing itself. Where was the divine nature while the human nature was suffering? It, It didn't leave Him. He didn't become less divine so that He could experience the distress or the suffering. The divine nature was there, but it was relating to Him in such a way that His human nature was able to experience this distress. So, we could ask the same question in another way. How is it possible that the omnipotent and infinite God 
could be tired and need to sit down by a well and get a drink. John chapter 4. How is it possible that the creator of water would be thirsty? How is it possible that the infinite and omniscient God who knows everything could at times not know certain things? How is that possible? It is because sometimes His divine nature expressed itself, sometimes His human nature expressed itself. And in this instance, what we have is the human nature experiencing and expressing the distress, the troubling of the soul. And where is the divine nature? It is there, but the divine nature is not affecting and influencing the person of Christ in all of its power and in all of its glory. We might view the divine nature as passive while the human nature is experiencing the reality of this. And that is as far as I can go. But I would agree with J.C. Ryle, who said that had the divine nature of Christ expressed itself in the fullness of its glory and power, the Lord Jesus would not have suffered at all. Because the divine nature cannot suffer distress or angst over this. So that is the hypostatic union. Let me draw a couple of applications just out of that doctrine. First, we, we can remember that Jesus was not untouched by the realities of human experience and suffering. Sometimes it's possible for us to think of Jesus kind of like an actor. He came down here, he took upon himself a body, and he went and did this whole work of the cross and suffering and dying and all that, blah, 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 as if he is detached from that. And we ought never to think that Christ, even though he was divine, was ever detached from the reality of the suffering. It was real suffering, real distress, real anxiety, real troubling of soul that he experienced. It was real in every way. He is not a stoic dispassionate, emotionless actor who was simply playing a part for the sake of human redemption. It was real and genuine suffering. A second thing is that we should note that there is nothing sinful about being troubled. Jesus was troubled. And we need to enter into the full reality of that and understand the full reality of that. There's nothing sinful about being troubled, even about things of this world and things that we experience and things that the Lord allows us to come upon us. It is okay to be troubled. It is okay to be stirred up, to be to be in angst, to be distressed over something. There's nothing wrong with that. It is okay to be rightly troubled for the right reasons, over the right things, and to handle it rightly, which is to trust in God and submit to His sovereignty and His purpose and His grace in this. Where we go wrong is that we allow the trouble to reveal our lack of trust in the sovereignty and grace of God and our lack of reliance upon Him. And that's where our real trouble, which is not sinful in itself, becomes sinful when we allow the trouble to express itself in unbelief or worry or distress or another some other sinful way. There's nothing sinful about being troubled. We will be troubled in this world. Expect it, count on it, and look forward to it with great anticipation because if it hasn't come to you yet, it will certainly come to you before you pass from this mortal coil. All right, the second great truth, not only the hypostatic union, but the second one that I mentioned was the imputation of sin and righteousness. Why was Jesus distressed? What was behind this? Where, where do we get the idea of imputation of sin and righteousness from this idea of him being distressed or troubled? What caused the distress? Well, you said, Jim, I think it was the cross. I mean, obviously. Well, what about the cross? Well, the nails in the hands, the nails in the feet, the spear in the side, the crown of thorns, the whipping, the scourging, the mocking, the, the torment, the thirst, the hunger, the heat, and the hanging up there and suffocating and dying a horrible death, all of that would be enough to cause distress. It would be, but I would submit to you that it is not merely the physical pain of the cross that caused this distress. I don't think it could have been. And here's why. Many a martyr has endured physical pain associated with death with hardly a murmur. Uh, many people, even unbelievers, deal with painful deaths and terrible and terrific pain throughout the course of their entire lives 
and even dying in horrible pain over long periods of time with hardly a murmur. Do you think Jesus was so weak and such a coward that mere physical pain would cause a distress of soul like this and cause him to cry out in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood? Do you think that he is so weak and such a coward that that's all that's behind this distress? It's not. The only thing that can explain the distress of his soul is the reality of the fact that it was not just the physical pain that he suffered, but he knew that in the physical pain and at the cross he was facing something far more profound, something unseen by all those who observed, but something observed only in the spiritual realm, and that is the imputation, the crediting of all of the sin of all of his people, his sheep, his bride, all of God's elect from all of eternity, all of that sin laid upon Christ. It was not just the physical suffering. It was the fact that he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. That he suffered and died the just punishment of a holy God against the sin of all his people. That is an infinite death suffered by an infinitely righteous person. And that is an infinite weight of suffering and wrath that you and I cannot even comprehend or even begin to grasp. Because any one of my sins deserves an eternal punishment. Just one. And I have heaped up lots. I have heaped up multitudes of sins over the course of my life. And I continue to heap up sins with every day that I live in this sinful flesh. But the reality is that all of my sin, and not just mine, but all of those who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, all of that sin was laid upon Him. So that it wasn't just a hypothetical suffering. It wasn't just a potential suffering. It wasn't just a demonstration of the love of God and now anybody who wants in can get in. No, it was a real suffering where He bore a real wrath on behalf of His people. That was what happened at the cross. And that is what caused Christ's distress. It was the righteous one facing an infinite wrath of His Father. What caused Him distress was not His own sin, but my sin. It was my troubles. See, when we are troubled, you and I, when we are troubled, it is usually due to the fact that we are sinners and we have sinned and we have grieved God and we're dealing with some reality of sin in our own lives. But when Christ was troubled in soul, it wasn't because of His own sin, it was because of our sin. He knew that all of those whom the Father had given to Him to save were under the Father's wrath and needed an atonement and a price to be paid for their sin. And looking at the cross, He realized the wrath of God that He would bear on Himself being punished for the sins of His people. That was what was distressing. Physical death? Just physical pain? Tens of thousands of people were crucified and many of them faced it with resolve and courage and just bore the pain with hardly a murmur. It wasn't just the physical pain. It was facing the wrath of God knowing that He Himself would bear our iniquities and take them away. That is what caused the distress. As J, uh, not J.C. Rowell, uh, Matthew Henry said, the, the troubles of His soul were designed to ease the troubles of ours. The troubles of His soul were designed to ease the troubles of ours. So now look at the question. So those are the two theological, the theolo theologies behind that, the hypostatic union and the imputation of our right, of Christ's righteousness to us and our sin to Him. Now look at the question that He asks in verse 27. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Now you'll notice that if you are reading the King James Version, that the emphasis that I put on that statement is different than the punctuation that you have in the translation in front of you. And that's due to one simple fact. That that phrase can be punctuated two different ways and thus carry kind of two slightly different meanings. And I'll give you the first. I'll give you these two ways. The first is the way the King James would render it. What shall I say? Question mark. That's one phrase. And then a statement which would be taken as a prayer. Father, save me from this hour. So my soul is troubled. What shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour. So the first becomes a question uh, expressing his distress. The second phrase becomes a prayer for him to be saved from this hour. And then he says, but for this reason, I have come to this hour. Now, both J.C. Ryle and Matthew Henry take this in the King James sense and, and sort of put, separate the two phrases, seeing one as a question uh, expressing his distress over the cross and the other as a prayer coming out of that distress over the cross. The modern translations put both of those together into uh, one rhetorical question, making Christ to say this, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? In other words, the question is, should I pray that I would be saved from this hour? Now, I think that putting them together makes more sense out of the flow of the text, and as well as the context of what we know was Jesus' state of mind at the time. Matthew Henry and J.C. Ryle, or the King James translation of it, would, would have Christ, and this may be it, okay, this may be it. This is not how I take it, but this may be it. That Jesus is really experiencing distress, and he is wavering back and forth, and we are seeing here him express the distress and anxiety of his soul. I am distressed. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But on the other hand, that's why I have come to this hour. So we see him wrestling with it. That could be it. I think that what he is saying is he is using this as an opportunity to say, in in spite of the distress that I am facing, the reality of that, I will not pray to be delivered from this. Instead, I am going to face this in obedience to the will of God, because for this reason I have come. He's already described, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's why he came. He said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And this is just Jesus expressing that this is why I have come. Was he distressed? Yes. Was it a real distress? Yes. Was it serious troubling of soul? It was. But would he pray, God, save me from this? No, instead, he would pray, Father, glorify your name. Because Jesus said, for this reason I've come. I'm the good shepherd. And I've come to lay down my life for the sheep. So I'm not going to pray for deliverance. And I'm not going to allow the distress and the troubling of my soul to change the plan. He is saying, instead, I'm going to pray that as I face this suffering and death, that I will do so in a way that will honor and glorify the Father. Uh, He is praying here the same way that he prayed in John chapter 17, when he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is the eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. This is Jesus praying the same thing here a couple of days earlier that he does in John 17. Father, glorify your name. In other words, the distress that he felt in his soul, the troubling over the reality of bearing the wrath of God on behalf of his sheep, he would not let that divert him from the reason that he came. And he would not pray to be delivered from this. Instead, he would pray that the Father would be glorified through it. He would face the suffering, knowing that he would do so to the glory of God. Jesus understood that there are certain things in this world and in this universe and the eternal scheme of things that are more important than our lack of suffering or our ease or our comfort. You understand that? What is, what is more important, that God be glorified 
or that I not suffer? What is more important? Can you honestly say that it is better for God to be glorified and for me to suffer? And I mean, you take this personally, don't not Jim Osmond. Of course, everybody here would say, I'd rather see God glorified and Jim Osmond suffer, but you make it personal. Is it better that God be glorified and that you suffer, or that God not be glorified and that you not suffer? Which would you choose? Are you able to say it is better for God to be glorified if I suffer? Because I know that that is best for God and for me, His creature. If He can be glorified by disposing of me however He might choose, that is what I would choose. Because I would rather suffer and manifest His attributes and His glory and allow Him to be glorified than to not suffer at all. So the question of a mature believer, the prayer of a mature believer is never, Father, deliver me from this hour. But the prayer of a mature believer is always, Father, in this hour, whatever it is that you brought upon me, glorify your name. Just make, no matter what I have to face, if you are glorified through it, it is worth it. You believe that? That it's worth it? It is worth it. Because we get to share in His glory in eternity. There will be no sufferer and no creature and no child of God to look back upon their life and say, you know what? The glory I get now and the suffering back then, not quite worth it. We will gladly say it was well worth it. Because the glory of God is worth the disposal of His creatures however He sees fit because we have to have a high value of His glory and His honor because He is so good and because He is so holy and He is so worthy of glory for Him to be glorified by manifesting His attributes in the lives of His creatures however He may choose to do that is the best thing for His creatures and for His glory and for God. So look at the answer to the prayer. The prayer is, Father, glorify Your name. Then the answer, then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now this is a very unique uh, event that those in the crowd and those who are standing around would hear the voice of the Father. And this is obviously the voice of the Father speaking from heaven, saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is only the third time in Scripture, for there are only three times in Scripture, where a voice from heaven, the Father's voice, was heard audibly by anybody down here on earth. Only three times during the ministry and life of Jesus. And you can probably remember what the other two were. At His baptism and at the transfiguration. Now the baptism was before crowds, of probably a large crowd, probably believers and unbelievers. The transfiguration was just before Peter, James, and John. So these are the three occasions. The baptism, the transfiguration, now the third one, just a few days before His crucifixion. So the audible voice from heaven sort of serves to sandwich, as it were, the ministry of Jesus Christ, beginning at His baptism and ending at His crucifixion. We have those two events, both of them before crowds of unbelievers who hear the audible voice of God from heaven. Now, why was it significant that they heard an audible voice from heaven? John doesn't really cash out the significance for us. We're left somewhat to conjecture as to why they would have heard this or why on this occasion God saw fit to allow His voice to be heard from heaven. But He did. I think it speaks somewhat to the significance of this event and what the Son was about to go through. Unfortunately, the the true significance of the event was lost on most of the people as the following verse uh, shows. But what did the Father mean when He said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again? Some people take that as just to refer to the life of Christ in a very narrow sense. In other words, the Father is saying, Son, in your life from the time of your birth, the Incarnation, all the way through everything that you have done, I have glorified my name up until now. In your miracles, in your compassion, in your righteousness, your preaching, your teaching, uh, and all of the expressions of who you are and what you have done, I have been glorified by that. And Son, I will continue to glorify Myself through your suffering, your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and the building and sending of the Spirit and the giving of the church, that it was the Father's answer to the Son's request 
I have glorified it until now, and I will continue to glorify it. Others take this as just a reference to all of history, from creation all the way through to the eternal state. God has glorified and will glorify his name so that we could say that as much today as we could at any time in history or even back then. I tend to take it more narrowly. I think Jesus is describing his own distress, his own anxiety. He's praying something specific to the Father. Father, in this hour, the hour of my death, through my suffering, glorify your name. And the Father is answering it and saying, not only have I glorified it all the way up until now, but I am announcing that I will continue to glorify it and I will glorify it again. But the people who were there, they didn't understand what the voice said. They didn't understand the significance of it. Look at the next verse. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Now some in the crowd were able to perceive that this was a supernatural event, and they attributed it to the voice of an angel. Others in the crowd heard and thought that this was a natural event, and they thought it had simply thundered. This might have been something like what the, uh, Saul of, what the people heard around Saul of Tarsus when Jesus spoke to him. They heard a voice or they heard the noise, but they didn't understand what was being said. It's been speculated, and this is just speculation, but I think it's interesting. Perhaps those in the crowd who were Greeks... What particular Greeks? The Greeks who had asked to see Jesus in verse 20. Perhaps those in the crowd who were Greeks that didn't understand Hebrew heard the voice speaking in Hebrew and thought it was thunder. Because that's all they would have understood is heard the sound and not knowing what the voice was saying, it simply sounded to them like thunder. But the Hebrews who were there who understood Hebrew when God speaks in Hebrew to them, they understood the meaning of what was said and they thought it was the voice of an angel. I think that's an interesting possibility that maybe there were some there who just simply didn't understand the language. They thought it was thunder. Others thought it was the voice of an angel. But what is significant is that nobody there got it right. You notice that? Some an angel, some thunder. Who got it right? Nobody got it right. Why is that? How can you audibly hear the voice of God from heaven and get it wrong? How is that possible? Do, do you not see the significance of what is happening in front of you? Hear that voice and hear the speaking? And say, this is the Father speaking? You know, there are Christians today who think that they audibly hear the voice of God. How do you know that? There were people who did actually audibly hear it, and they got it wrong. They didn't even know it was the Father. They thought it was the voice of an angel. And I think this just serves to demonstrate the hardness of the heart of all those who were here and heard this. Their heart was hard. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot receive them. The natural man is willingly blind and deaf to the realities of spiritual things and the value of spiritual truth. And he cannot get it. And even when the Father audibly spoke from heaven, they thought it was thunder, they thought it was an angel, but they completely missed the reality of what it was. And that was actually the voice of the Father speaking audibly for them to hear. And they got it wrong because they're willingly blind and willingly deaf. In fact, this is John's point in the very last part of this chapter when he quotes from Isaiah and he says, for this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and He has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their ear, eyes and perceive with their hearts and be converted. And I heal them. There was a judicial blindness that had happened to the people and they were blind and they were deaf to the very voice of God itself. And not, any, not even the presence of miracles and the working of miracles could convince them to believe because they were willingly blind. And the same is the case today with men and women. Men and women reject the truth and reject the Word of God not because God has been unclear, and not because he hasn't spoken. He has spoken clearly. And anytime anybody hears the voice of God in Scripture and says that's just the words of men, it's just the writings of ancients, it's just the wisdom of the ages, it's just the circumstance of a bunch of collected documents, it's anything but the inerrant, authoritative word of God, anytime anybody does that, they make the same mistake that the people in the crowd make. They take the voice of God, which is plainly recorded and plainly spoken, and they attribute it to something other than what it is, which is God himself. Men are blind, 
and men are deaf to the truth quite willingly. And so even when a voice of God is heard from heaven, they get it wrong. Because that's how blind and deaf they truly were to the truth of Scripture. Now, that is the glory of the cross, and we will save the victory of the cross for next week, verses 30 to 33. All of our reflection upon the, the death of Christ and the meaning behind that, the significance of it, imputed righteousness and the hypostatic union, all of that of our time here should serve us to serve to prepare our hearts to observe communion together, Lord's Supper together. And we recognize that if it were not for the sovereign and powerful loving grace of God in Christ, that we would still remain today just as deaf and just as blind to the truth as any of the men in this crowd or any crowd have ever been. It is only because God is condescending in His love for us and loved us enough to send Christ for us and then to draw us to Himself that you and I can say that we see the truth of Scripture and that we love the truth of Scripture because, and we have affection for the truth because He has redeemed us and saved us unto the truth. And without that salvation and without that death of Christ on the cross bearing our sins, we would have to face the just wrath of God to bear those sins for us. You see, we either have to live perfectly the demands of God's justice or we have to find somebody who will do it on our behalf. And Christ did it on our behalf. So that in the death of Christ, we not only have our sins imputed to Him so that He bears our sins, but we have His righteousness, which we don't deserve, given to us. It's not just that our sins have been taken away, but we have been given an act of righteousness so that in the eyes of the Father, He views me and you, if you are in Christ, as somebody who has perfectly kept His law from the moment of your conception until the present day. Perfectly righteous. And it is a righteousness that we cannot improve upon. It is a righteousness that we cannot uh, defect. We cannot uh, impair it at all. It is a perfect righteousness, and it's not ours. It is Christ and is given to us on the basis of faith. All because of His death, His burial, and His resurrection on behalf of all those who place their faith in Him. So let's bow our heads together. We will confess our sins and then we'll partake of communion together. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.